Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from Proverbs 23, verses 15 and 16. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart will rejoice, indeed I myself. Yes, my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak right things. Last week we saw the purpose for discipline, that the rod would deliver the soul of our children from hell, and that is a reward in itself. But here we see another reward for instructing our children. When we see fruit in them, when we see wisdom, and when we see fruit coming out of them, words of wisdom, then we are given the reward of joy, deep and rich joy. Now for parents, this proverb teaches us that our children are the greatest gifts God gives to us. And one of the most wonderful things God grants to men is faithfulness in their children. We should take shepherding their hearts more seriously than we do. Because kids are more than just a drain on our resources and our energy or a hassle. They are the future. And they will ultimately be our greatest blessing or curse. Also, we can learn the value from this proverb of telling them how much we value them. Solomon tells his son, he says, listen up. I will be happy if you are wise. He says, I will exult in the truth coming out of your mouth. We must learn to encourage our children with both the rod and with praise and reward. One of the most powerful things you can say to your children when they have accomplished a task or performed well is, I'm proud of you. It means something. And they need this. They need that kind of love. And they need the security that that provides. All too often we can assume that they know this. And maybe they do, but we should still tell them how much we love them and how much their lives affect our own joy or heartache. Children, you need your parents' praise. You need for them to be happy with you. And you know that you want it. So here's what, where you learn how to get it. Obtain wisdom and let it sink into your souls. Listen to your parents and teachers and have hearts that are humble and teachable. Do good and learn the truth and then speak it. And it will make your parents very happy. And the opposite is true also. If you reject wisdom and your hearts are arrogant and proud and hard and you don't listen, 
and you are naughty, and if you speak lies and are mean to each other, this will cause your parents to be disappointed and sad. And if they love you, they will have to discipline you, because they want you to go to heaven and to be happy. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So please kneel as we pray to God. Palm Sunday. Um, today uh, we conclude our study of the Beatitudes, but we also remember our Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Fittingly, he went there to make peace because he was the Son of God and to suffer and to die for righteousness' sake and to lay the foundation of his kingdom. So the last two Beatitudes are, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the Beatitudes, Jesus tells us what blessedness in his service looks like. It looks like humility, mourning, meekness, righteousness, mercy, purity, making peace, and suffering persecution. And these are pronouncements of blessedness. He says, those things are the state of being fortunate or blessed. And they are tied to the blessings of current membership in the kingdom of heaven, and future comfort, and inheriting the earth, and satisfaction, and mercy, and God's presence, and honor. In his life, Jesus showed us what it looks like by modeling it for us and by walking the road before us. His actions bore witness of his message. And he didn't just preach a message. He didn't just talk the talk, but he walked the walk. And he was vindicated when his promised blessings were displayed and initiated in the resurrection and in the church, which he established. So let's dive into the last two Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now again, this, flow, this blessing flows out of the last one. And the last Beatitude is the pure in heart are blessed because they shall see God. But here we see that the, the peacemakers are blessed because they will be called sons of God. Well, how is it that the, pe the pure in heart, beholding God become peacemakers. When we see God, and we're filled with knowledge of Him and awareness of Him and, and how He works, it results in action. We cannot see God and not be changed. We cannot see God and have it not affect what we do. So the word in this beatitude is Blessed are the peacemakers, and it's a one word, peacemakers. And, and, and it's, so when you add those two words together, peace and makers, it's peace doers or peace workers, the workers of peace, the people who do this, who put it into action. So when we see God, we're filled with 
awareness of him, it results in action. Now remember that Jesus is describing the work of his spirit in his people. He's, he's giving us a, a, a portrait of what the spirit of God is in, in his people. And that spirit is a spring of living water. It flows outward. So in purity of heart, when we see God in that tranquility of soul, we start to reflect the God who made us. We start to become like Him. And, and that God who made us loves us. And our souls become like a pool that reflects His light and His image. And in perfect knowledge of God, seeing Him face to face, we find the perfect balance of justice and mercy. And the result is the outworking of peace. Where justice meets mercy is where peace is established. So what does peacemaking mean? It's, in the Old Testament, the word for peace is shalom. And, and it's put together with making occasionally. Um, in Proverbs 3, we read about that, that the paths of wisdom are peace. Proverbs 3.17, her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. So we see that wisdom brings peace. Wisdom walks in peace. In John chapter 14, we find that Jesus' peace is not troubled and not afraid. John 14 verses 25 to 27. Jesus says, and this is just after Jesus prophesied his own death and that the disciples would be deserting him. I'm sorry, that's the next one. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So the Spirit brings peace. When, God, when Jesus gives us His Spirit, He takes away trouble and fear. In John 16, Jesus prophesies His own death and that the disciples would be deserting Him. And then He says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. He's just got done saying, after they've been following Him all this time, and it's just before His crucifixion, He says, Okay, I'm going to die, and you will be deserted. And then he says, I told you that, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So Jesus' peace is not troubled, it's not fearful, and he says that peace is available when we are in tribulation in the world. His peace is available if we are in Him. In Jesus, we can have peace. Uh, Jesus proclaims peace to His disciples after His resurrection. In John 20, He says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, the first words out of His mouth, Peace 
be with you. Peace guards and protects, Philippians 4. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And finally, peace rules, Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. So here we've got a bunch of definition of what Jesus means and what God means by peace. But then we have this peacemakers. And this is the only place where we, we find this word in the Bible, peacemakers. And as a verb, we find this word in, first, in Colossians 1, where we learn that death and sacrifice make peace. So the, the, there's a, it's, it's the same word, but it's, it's, it's a verb or a noun. Here in, in Matthew 5, it's, it's a noun, and, and, we're, and we're called to be blessed peacemakers, people who do peace. And that word is, 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 a, is a verb in Colossians 1. And we find that death and sacrifice make peace. That reconciliation comes through the cross, and that the cross made peace. Colossians 1, verses 19 to 22. For it pleased the Father that in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The cross makes peace. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Making peace is effective reconciliation. Jesus covers our sins. He takes us from the status of enemies of God and, and doers of wickedness. And he makes us holy and righteous and blameless and above reproach in his sight. The cross makes peace. And if we are to be peacemakers, we need to become like Jesus Christ and reconcile the world to God. That's our job. When we bear witness of Christ, when we fulfill the calling that is given to us, we become peacemakers. So how does this work? Internal peace results in outward manifestations of it. If it's not in here, it can't be out there. If we don't have it within us, we can't share it with those outside of us. Jesus needs to make us right inside. And when we become reconciled with God, when, that, when, when he's brought us through these stages of the blessedness to the point where we've been honest before God and we see him and behold him and we're filled with this vision of, of his glory... And, that, and, and, and how he is and how he works that we can then share him with others and become a reflection of him. Because we are reconciled, we can become reconcilers. In the revelation of God in Christ, the Son of God, at the cross, we find God's answer to 
all the turmoil that has resulted from the fall. The, the, the story of the Bible is the story of God's creation and the fall. And then the rest of the story is how does God redeem that creation? How does he redeem human beings? Because we are wicked and we are sinners and we make a mess of it. And he reveals himself incrementally over time and in Christ is all the fullness of him is revealed. And so the story is of Jesus Christ and how God is reconciling the world to him. And what we see is that that turmoil that resulted from the fall, that confusion, the wickedness and evil that exists in our world, that noise, the ugliness, the death, all of that is dealt with and the final word is brought by Jesus Christ on the, dying on the cross and paying the penalty for it. We find at the cross the absolute justice and the absolute mercy represented in one glorious act of redemption. So earlier I said, you know, where we find the balance of justice and mercy is, is, is where, uh, where peace comes from. It's not just a balance of justice and mercy. It's not like you're robbing from Peter to pay Paul, or you're trying to figure out, well, we need just this much mercy and just this much, this much justice, and if we can get it just right and finagle it all, then we can get peace. That's not, that's not what it is. It's absolute justice, total justice, perfect justice, and at the same time, absolute mercy total mercy and complete mercy in one glorious act of redemption where the, the Son of God dies for you and for me. Now, there are several kind of metaphors that just were popping into my head as I was thinking through this. Like, so what, what, is, what is peacemaking like? Um, and so you can think about it in different terms or in different uh, realms. So like in, in terms of sound, we're like sound barriers, like, like a soundproof room. And, and peace, peacemakers would be like uh, the barrier muffling the noise of sin and the cacophony of confusion that results from sin. Uh, peacemakers, it just, it hits and it dissipates. Like, like, like the cross does to our sin. It just disintegrates. Spreads it from, from the east as far as from the west. It, you can compare it to physical force. Um, peacemakers are like flak jackets or bomb blankets protecting the valuable life that they shield. Taking the hit. And, and, and establishing peace, or uh, in, in a different kind of physical force like safety shrouds, or, or shields, or deflectors, or safety glasses that, that take the hit instead of the limb, or the finger, or the eye. In terms of community, it looks like righteous judges. It looks like good kings. It looks like Jesus. We come and we speak truth and we show love. Redirecting the focus on self, the pride, 
the arrogance of the sinner and pointing men toward Jesus and the Father. Just like Jesus points us to the Father. And so what the, the, the way to, to, to establish peace is pointing people to God. Because when you take them from the confusion of sin, and the darkness, and the blindness, where they're bumping into each other, and they're all, it's all about me, and, and snap, you know, was, you grasp, and, and hold on to, and, and bicker, and fight. Um, if you want to get them past that, you have to get them to look past themselves. And that means you need to point to Jesus. You need to speak the truth. You need, to be, you, you need to be a stickler about speaking the truth because that purity of heart is absolutely necessary. But as they come to see Jesus, they see what he actually did for mankind on the cross. That is transformative. And it establishes peace. So when you point to Father, we bring peace. And the result of, of this is as Jesus puts it, we shall be called sons of God. We shall be called sons of God. We become like Jesus. We become like Him. And we share in His glory. We participate in what He's doing in the world. Because Jesus has overcome the world. He has overcome death. And all fullness dwells in him. And in him good triumphs over evil. And peace conquers war. So apply this. Be a peacemaker. Make peace. Represent Jesus Christ to the world. Be a Christian. That's the application. So what's it look like? Well, that depends a little bit. In society, we all play different roles. In, in some places, in some contexts, we are given rule or authority. In others, we are under authority and we submit to authority. And God gives us different levels of responsibility. And these different levels mean that peacemaking looks differently in different realms or for different people in different contexts. So in one context, if you're a person in authority, then peacemaking looks different than if you're the person who's under authority. Um, so it's different if you're the judge or if you're the person being judged. It's different if you're the parent or you're the child. It's different if you're the teacher or if you're the student or if you're the teacher or you're the principal. It's, it's different. But where you have authority and responsibility, you make peace by practicing justice and establishing righteousness. That's how you make peace. You discern wisely. So for parents, teachers, employers, managers, judges, governors, anybody who has authority, practice justice, establish righteousness. So if there's a dispute among your children or your students, or your employees, or your people, if you're a, a, a governor. Discern wisely and discipline wrongdoing. Punish the wrongdoer. And vindicate the oppressed. Set free those who have been wronged, and the one who suffered wrongly. 
And always, always, always lead by example. You have to, you can't tell somebody that they need to practice righteousness if you're not living it first. It's not fair because they won't believe you. You won't get any traction that way. So always, always, always lead by example. Don't play head games, don't cheat, don't lie or steal, and don't abuse your authority. That does not establish peace. That does the opposite. Now, where you are under authority, you establish peace in a different way. If you're the authority figure, you, you look to God and you discern wisely about what is right and what is wrong, and you act accordingly. If you are under authority, you establish peace by doing well. Do your job. Do it right. You establish peace by submitting to the authorities that God has placed over you. God's given authority to people who are over you, therefore you submit to them and you show those who are under you what it looks like to be a peacemaker. You establish peace by seeking justice and not vengeance. If you've been wronged, you seek justice. You, you bring it to the appropriate authority. You follow the lines that have been established for dealing with wrongdoing. You don't go out and vindicate yourself. You don't go become a vigilante. You forgive wrongs. When, when somebody has wronged you, you have to have a spirit that is willing to forgive, that seeks to forgive. To, you, you want justice, you want righteousness, you don't lie about the situation, you don't, it's, you don't make a mockery of righteousness, but you recognize it and at the same time be willing to cover it. Love covers a multitude of sins. And sometimes it means you suffer. Sometimes when you're under authority and righteousness is not established and justice is not practiced, and you have been wronged, sometimes you suffer. So, kids, employees, citizens, etc., do good to your neighbor and not evil. Speak the truth in love. Don't be a grumbler or complainer. Hold on to the peace that is yours in Christ and look forward to the reward that is yours in Him. It, it's not a pointless suffering. And we're going to get into this in a second. It's not a pointless suffering, though. If you suffer for, for suffer wrong for righteousness' sake, it is not pointless. So hold on to that peace that is yours in Christ. If you're wronged, by all means, seek justice through the appointed channels. But if it doesn't come, suffer patiently, and look to God for redemption and for vindication. Now, the, the end result of all this peacemaking should be a culture of peace, a community of peace. And that peace is life-giving. It spreads life. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's a godly home where kids can thrive and grow, where they know what it is to live in community and have peace with one another to share in the joys and the trials of life together. But 
on the same page. It's a church where energies are spent serving each other and building each other up instead of tearing each other down or bickering. It, it's a place where the broken can go to be mended, where the sick can heal, and ultimately where the dead can rise. A workplace where peace reigns is a place where the employees can enjoy working, just for the sake of the work. Instead of, even if you love your job, but it's a place where injustice reigns, you can only put up with it with so much. But if peace is established, it's a place where, where your workplace can thrive. It, it, the end result is a country where justice is served and meted out, and the vulnerable are protected. And all of this starts from changed hearts, starts on the inside, and it spreads outward with the peace of God. Nevertheless, because of our fallen world, the pathway to that kind of peace and that kind of culture is lined with suffering. And we come to our last beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kind of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This beatitude is the outflow of the rest. If you put into practice the other seven, this one just flows out of it. So remember the cross. That's the archetype of where all peace comes from and, and, and where peacemaking happens. Remember the cross. Similarly, in Romans 8, verses 14 to 19, we read, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Okay? Remember, remember that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. As we become sons of God, as we become like Jesus... He tells us in the Gospels that, well, they persecuted me, so they'll persecute you. We, we know that we can expect this. And then Paul is reiterating that. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, we are children. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with it. Notice how it's tied right in there. If you will be children of God, you will suffer for Christ. If you will be blessed with all the blessings of the Beatitudes, you will be blessed with persecution. And yet we are heirs of God, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So that suffering is a, is a suffering that comes with a hope, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is what our verse says. Here it says that we may also be glorified together with Jesus. For I consider, this is what Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God. Okay. There's a lot in that verse, those verses right there. But you get the gist of it. We are sons of God because we are filled with the Spirit of God. We are filled with Christ's Spirit. We, we have been adopted with Jesus. And as we are like Him, we will suffer with Him. But that suffering is nothing to be compared to the glory that is given to us in Him. The salvation that He has poured out upon us. Now this proclamation of blessing, this beatitude, is the most counterintuitive of all of them. Blessed are those who are persecuted happy or fortunate are those who are persecuted. What are you talking about, Jesus? Seriously? Fortunate are those who are persecuted. How can persecution be blessing? How is suffering blessing? Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about what counts as persecution. In verse 11 we read, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So, reviling and speaking all kinds of evil against you for Jesus' sake. That's speaking words against you. That is persecution. That's speaking evil, saying things Badly, bad things about you because you're a Christian, because of the witness that you bear. That is persecution. That counts. That counts as persecution. And then he says, um, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. So persecute. Now that's a, a lot broader than just revile or saying all kinds of evil about you, even though those are both broad too. But persecute includes physical persecution. Beatings, torture, killing, imprisonment, destruction of property. It involves financial persecution, taxes, lawsuits. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of ways you could be persecuted uh, financially. Legal persecution, making or infer, enforcing unjust laws. That's a kind of persecution that has, that has been used against God's people, against the church. And this kind of persecution seems fairly obvious or self-evident. That's persecution. When, when people are attacked because of their Christian witness, because they've, they've proclaimed Christ. But another way to look at this is, is what kind of persecution doesn't count? <laughs> so Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But then there is, there is persecution that happens that is not blessed. So what kinds of persecution are there out there that are not blessed? Well, first we know that persecution that is not for righteousness' sake is not persecution that is blessed. There's persecution that happens for wrongdoing. So if you commit a crime and then you have to pay the penalty for the crime, that is not persecution. That is justice. That is righteousness. Peter says, what good is it if you suffer for doing wrong? It's no good. He says, but if you suffer for doing right, praise the Lord. But for wrongdoing, that's not persecution. That's justice. Another kind of persecution that's not persecution for righteousness sake is self-imposed persecution. 
Um, there have been moments in the history of the church uh, in certain areas of, uh, of, of the world uh, where asceticism is practiced. People would eat nothing, or they would live on top of a pole for years, or they would, they would uh, beat themselves, self-flagellation, or penance, crawling up stone steps on your knees until they bleed. That's persecution, but it's not suffering for righteousness' sake. And it's self-imposed persecution. And it tells a lie about what our God is and what He's like. Jesus comes saying, Rejoice! The kingdom of heaven is yours, and I freely forgive your sins. So let's go beat on ourselves for a while. That doesn't make any sense. God is not an ogre. He doesn't want us to suffer. He doesn't delight in our pain. In fact, he promises to vindicate our suffering and justify us for suffering on his behalf. So self-imposed persecution is not suffering for righteousness' sake. Another kind of persecution that does not count is persecution that is not persecution. Okay. <laughs> persecution that is not persecution does not count. So there's a kind of persecution that's actually a lie that we tell ourselves of persecution, but it really isn't. And instead, it's really disobedience. And what I'm talking about here is, is the kind of persecution that we, when we capitulate to social pressure, and we say, well, I, I can't use Jesus' name in public because people wouldn't like that. And we feel persecuted for that. Okay, I'm not going to pray at the restaurant. Or uh, I can't post that because it's too Christian and it might offend somebody. And we can think that that's persecution. Because we're thinking, oh, they wouldn't like it, and we think we need to be nice to them. But it's not persecution. That, what that is, is that's a refusal to bear Christ's name in the public square because of perceived persecution. That isn't persecution at all. And the only reason it's that way is because we've refused to declare Christ's name exactly where it should be proclaimed. So by all means, speak Jesus' name in the public square. But then, expect persecution. <laughs> doesn't mean you're not going to be persecuted because you did it. Expect it, but then you're dealing with real persecution. But this whole self-perceived persecution of, of just what the culture is, that's, that's not real persecution. And there are some things that kind of fall in between the cracks that they could be persecution or they might not be persecution. And it takes wisdom to discern them. So if somebody posts a mean comment on your Facebook post or your blog, it might be persecution and it might not be. It really depends on whether you're suffering for Jesus' sake or if they've got a point and you need to repent of whatever it is you did. It depends. It, it can be persecution. But it can also not be persecution. And that's where you go to God's word for revelation and truth and light. So how does this work? How do we get blessed by being persecuted? Well, one, once we get these things in order, 
the basis of, of persecution. If, if we're being persecuted for the right causes, so if we're being persecuted for righteousness sake, and if we're being persecuted for Jesus sake, which is one and the same thing. If, if we're being persecuted for the right reasons, John says, well, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you. That's what Jesus said in, in the book of John. The definition of being a Christian is take up your cross and follow me. Well, a cross is not something that's cozy and comfortable. It's a death sentence. It's an electric chair. And we know that that's the definition from the outset. And yet we take up our cross because we believe in the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. It's a matter of faith. That's how persecution is blessing. We believe in the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. We believe that God is, that God exists, that he's real, that the message that this Bible is proclaiming is the true message. And because God is, believing in him is a good idea. And doing what he says is a good idea. Because he's the rewarder of the faithful. He is there, and therefore our examples of faith throughout the scriptures, the prophets, the examples of faith in the scripture are not people that we pity, they're people that we hold in honor, and they are heroes. Jesus says, for so they persecuted the prophets. They're our heroes. We want to be like them. The reward for us in persecution is one proof of our salvation. If we are being persecuted for righteousness' sake and for Jesus Christ's sake, we can know that we are saved. And if you're not being persecuted for following Jesus, you might need to follow a little harder. If you're not suffering for the sake of Christ, you better start wondering, wait, what's, what's wrong? Where, where did I drop the ball? Am I being obedient? Proof of salvation. Another is glory. We have the prophets for our example. And Jesus tells us that great is our reward in heaven. And we accept this on faith. We believe it. And what is faith? What Hebrews 11 says so faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You're not seeing it. It's not. That's why this is paradoxical, because you, you don't see it. It doesn't make sense to the world when they see Christians suffering for righteousness' sake. It doesn't make sense to the world when they see Jesus hanging on the cross. That doesn't click for them. It, they can't wrap their heads around it, because you can't see it. But we believe it. Because it's the message that he gave to us. And the, the, the third is related to the previous two. We are in the kingdom of heaven. The promise in this one is present tense. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are there. We are doing the work of the kingdom. In persecution for righteousness sake. We are establishing Jesus' rule over the world. So the application for this one is simple. Rejoice in persecution. That's hard, but it's simple. Rejoice in persecution. One of the most glorious things about this beatitude is that faith 
trumps every enemy, every problem in the world. There is nothing left for the world to throw at you when you're supposed to rejoice from persecution. If everything that the world says was, I'm going to try this, I'm going to, I'm going to persecute you this way, I'm going to try this way, and every time they do it, you're like, woohoo, hallelujah, praise the Lord! Now, I'm not one that goes to looking at encyclopedias of sermon uh, examples and that sort of thing very much. But I found a great one in regard to this one. So Pliny, a Roman governor in Asia Minor in the early 2nd century, was so puzzled about the Christians brought before him for trial that he wrote his famous letter to the Emperor Trajan asking for his advice. And this was the kind of thing he found himself up against. A certain unknown Christian was brought before him. And Pliny, finding little fault in him, proceeded to threaten him. I will banish you, he said. You can't, was the reply. For all the world is my father's house. Then I will slay thee, said the governor. You can't answered the Christian, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your possessions, continued Pliny. You can't, for my treasure is in heaven. I will drive you away from man, and you shall have no friend left, was the final threat. And the calm reply once more was, you can't. For I have an unseen friend from whom you cannot separate me. What can the world do with that kind of thing? It can't be conquered. And Jesus will never be conquered. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. established his kingdom in our world. He calls us to follow him, and in this call resides all the promises of the gospel. Forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, eternal life, and reward for doing good. So have faith, take up your cross, and follow Jesus, because it is well worth it. And we're not left alone in this. Jesus has given us himself in the scriptures, by his spirit, and in each other. And in this meal, he promises to be with us, to strengthen us, and to encourage us when we are weak and when we are empty. When we suffer, he is there with us. When we die, he is there for us. And we will never be alone or forsaken or without hope ever again. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's 
C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.